Different gravy, not just another Sheffield Wednesday podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Richard Miller, and my co-host, proud pop pop to a sourdough starter, Dr. Luke Gledall. How are you doing today, Luke? I'm good, Rich. Um, also, I have like a little bit of an additional kind of thing that maybe you could mention for me as an introduction. Okay. Um, so in a conversation with my eldest brother, uh, we both discovered that I was the reverse tiny temper, being that being a scunthorpe, never been to Southampton. <laughs> Lovely. <laughs> That's tiny temper. Excellent. And I also, thought... Rich, I have yep. a little intro for you. That's also oh. kind of... So let's go from the top. Well to different gravy. I'm one of your co-hosts, Luke Lennell. And joining me as ever, he's one of those people who calls himself a fan. And if Loving Wednesday calls him a cretin, then call him a cretin. I have heard of him. I have spoken to him. And I have met him. Rich <laughs> is a man. And it's a venomous Rich. It's Mr. Richard Miller. Lovely stuff. Venomous Rich. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so how also, you... I think would be a fantastic title for the episode if completely unfitting because you're <laughs> well if, I don't know if, if venomous means loving Wednesday and is a lovely lovely human being then uh, then you are you are a venomous rich well we're gonna get into some some uh, you know some tricky <laughs> some testy waters I think uh, early doors in this uh, <laughs> podcast so like you <laughs> it might be a very fitting title indeed uh, but how are you coping sort of I don't know how many I've lost track of how many weeks we've been um, scurried away in our, our homesteads. Feels, but how, how's it been like, for you? It feels like forever at this point, I must say. But I I actually probably say I'm feeling like maybe I'm it. It just feels like different milestones of getting used to things. You know, mm, yeah. Like I feel a bit more comfortable. I don't know what things are like in the UK. There's talk of um, relaxing some of the things that here in Alberta. Yeah. So it's kind of governed on a provincial level and i'm not entirely sure about that i'm feeling a little bit cautious um i don't think we should be doing it i think i'd rather like to see i mean i guess my ideal situation would be like you know i mean if if everybody could somehow be placed into hibernation for two three weeks yes and then basically that just kind of gets rid of the disease <laughs> yeah yeah i don't but know if it's a realistic a option but yeah no, I don't think so. my no, preference no. would be doing this once properly and never having to do it again rather than doing it once for too long but but sort of realistically not long enough and then there's another everything off again and then just having to do all this again in two or three months time it will the you know the, it will let be a lot less fun the next time around if we have to do this again and uh i don't i do worry that people won't be quite as accepting of it if if there's a second sort of attempt to squeeze things down again but uh Oh, well, you know, we live and learn. One of the things I'm enjoying with the lockdown is um, just seeing how, quite how hairy a man I can become. I've, I've not had a haircut now for whatever, six weeks. Uh, I've not shaved since my last day in work. Uh, so I'm just bustling out hair wherever. And I, I really feel like I'm channeling on a, on a daily basis, basis in my sort of stoic, um, you know, getting through things life. You know, I'm playing a bit of uh, Animal Crossing. I'm not screaming in a corner. And I think I'm channeling some of those great Scotsmen before me, you know, Robert the Bruce, Rob Roy, uh, <laughs> you know, Mel Gibson. I think all those guys, they were hairy dudes. And uh, that's what I think I'm, br- I'm bringing to the table now as, as a kind of a stay home uh, hero. 
That's what I'm doing. <laughs> How far in your stages of being a Scotsman do you think you'll uh, emulate Ultimate Scotsman Mel Gibson and make a film about Jesus Christ? And I've then also made say a some question- I mean, you've also you've also said some questionable things in your time, haven't you? <laughs> 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 oh no, wait, sorry, that's me. Sorry, that's me. Sorry, sorry Ron. Well, I've, I don't think I've ever met a policewoman that I've not said sugar tits to. So, I mean, me and Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> do share some similarities oh venomous rich ladies and gentlemen <laughs> uh so i think it's probably a good time to uh to do our little drop partial hoo-hoos yeah partial hoo-hoos i mean this really is a, a slim pickings in terms of uh, wednesday related news even vaguely Wednesday. very news. thin on the ground for any but, uh, kind of news we're still very much I guess the thing is, like, we're still, this is an overarching larger issue, but we're still talking about, is it still possible to have, yeah. you know, <clears throat> football played for the rest of the 1920 season in different shades? Mm. And every day that passes, it looks less likely. And it looked infinitesimally less likely near the beginning. Like, I don't, it's, it's kind of like the exact opposite kind of graph to the pandemic you know yeah the pandemic is growing exponentially and this thing <laughs> and this thing is just going negatively the other way like it's just it's how how is it ever possible I, Especially uh, yeah. it seems to be as much as i understand in the culture of the, of the uk and the little bits i've kind of kept up to date mm-hmm. with my you know my home my uh my origin country, as I like to refer oh, to. Oh, okay. Um, you know, if there's such a great issue with getting testing kits to frontline workers, then it's yeah. the last thing to to figure out. Unless well, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe we all use uh, Sam Winnell's connection. You know, <laughs> maybe uh, Sam Winnell, uh, our black markets contacts from the black country striker. <laughs> <laughs> It, but uh, yeah, I, I I think there's so many issues on a obviously a sort of health and safety level. But then there's bigger, probably bigger questions to answer on a kind of moral level. Because I just I don't think football deserves any special treatment, and you're putting people at risk. You know, it, there's got to be ambulance workers or at least sort of J- St John's ambulance people at games to respond to things, mm. and. Like that in and of itself is just like, well, why on earth should they be at a football game of all things? A football game that doesn't need to happen other than there's some money tied up in it. That's the only real reason that there's a push to complete this season is that Sky has already paid for these football matches to happen. So if you don't play them, you've probably got to pay the piper in some way. But I don't, yeah, I, it's all along felt like the the best solution is to kind of say that this year, this season didn't really happen and just start next year afresh. I don't know what other solutions are out there, but we can we can you know we've talked about it at length before. We can talk about it till the cows come home. We're, we're not going to get there, are we? But one thing that seems worth noting is that this would have been the last weekend of the the sort of proper season um and we would have been thinking ahead to the playoffs at this stage uh whether or not we would as wednesday would have any involvement in that i highly highly doubt given our form before the uh the lockdown <laughs> but um it's just interesting to note yeah this would have been when we played middlesbrough um and uh, and closed off the, pro- the the season proper um outside of that i think probably the best thing to do is, is get back to our the second half of our look at uh, Owls, Sheffield Wednesday through the modern era. 
by Tom Whitworth. So just to kind of uh, remind folks, set the tone a little bit, we'd 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 battered through over a hundred years of history and <laughs> and just introduced um, some key characters in in the sort of the beginning of what what this book really calls the modern era. Uh, a couple of key characters. Uh, in Paul Sturrock and Dave Allen. Uh, so Chris Turner had signed a team, shown himself not particularly good at managing that team, and then Paul Sturrock had been parachuted in. Um, and it was one of those opportunistic moments, really, where Sturrock had lost his job at Southampton after a very short amount of time uh, and was probably a very good manager whose stock was maybe at its lowest um so it was a good moment for him and a good moment for us and uh, obviously sort of time will tell to be to be a very good moment for us uh do, do you think that set the scene all right luke i think so the only thing i wanted to kind of bring in just kind of coming into this so we covered the first 10 chapters um the one piece that i little um that i thought we kind of skipped over which was kind of quite sweet was um the um the james quinn goal which um, you've obviously covered previously in your kind of top top ten goals. Oh yes, um, you missed the. Did you remember the bit from the book about how Sturrock actually left? Doesn't like watching the stoppage time. He, would, so he, he yeah. wouldn't watch stoppage time. There was a few really fun idiosyncrasies with uh, Paul Sturrock. So he wouldn't watch penalties. Um, he would go down the tunnel at stoppage time. And the other fun thing was. Um, in the days of those sort of, I mean, we maybe covered this already, but in the days of those five, um, having five substitutes, uh, I can't, I think it was away from home. He would always go with, uh, with no goalkeeper on the bench away from home. Cause he liked to have his options open. So those were, those were some quite idiosyncratic things, but knowing him, it was either kind of inherently, he kind of knew that those were <laughs> <laughs> like it's the little decisions to help himself mentally um but the goalkeeper one is probably one of those that you statistically is probably borne out actually it's a waste of a space having a goalkeeper on the bench mm. you know there's a thing with ice hockey where um teams pull the goalie but there's a the, statistically actually like the earlier you pull the goalie the better you tend the more likely you are to to get the benefit of pulling the goalie so you want more time with so that's essentially you take the goalkeeper off and replace him with an outfield player so you, you're going balls to the wall at the end of a, a match and trying to sort of pull things back it's like putting the big center back up top um something which pleasingly Klopp still does you know despite being this kind of footballing mastermind that's um broken the game and remade it in his image um still partial to when they're when they're under gosh sending a big man up top and just banging the ball up to him uh but yeah in ice hockey that's statistically actually there's, there's a caution in real life to it but statistically actually the earlier you do it the better it is and I, I do wonder where if like having a goalkeeper on the bench for for how rare an occurrence it is that a goalkeeper ever needs replaced during a match it's probably nearly always worth it's particularly when you had less subs nearly always worth not having him but yes that's a brilliant moment with the, the James Quinn goal because Sturrock didn't know he was getting ready to give them an absolute rocket for throwing away the chance of the playoff and they were, couldn't understand why they were why they were smiling and being happy <laughs> <laughs> so i thought that was a nice little fun bit that kind of blows the lines between part one and part d that we're doing right now and um coming into chapter 11 because that kind of leads into cardiff which so i guess it's kind of weird for our structure to kind of pick on a kind of high note before everything kind of devolves but why don't we just have a little kind of time just reminiscing 
on yes. Cardiff. So, Rich, how did you feel kind of reading this since you were kind of, um, you know, I was still on my kind of Wednesday sabbatical at that point? Yeah, I th- it brought back a lot of those really warm memories. I mean, that is one of my absolute favourite memories as a Wednesday fan. We went into some detail about that that day. This was really my re-engagement with Sheffield Wednesday was was the, was that season. It really got, got its hooks into me. I loved Paul Sturrock. I just thought he was such a great character. Um, and we had this team full of, it was just a motley crew, you know, young players that seemed to improve week by week and older heads that were really interesting characters. I mean, then we had Guy Branston, who his nickname was Psycho. Um, I think he got you know, maybe got as many yellow cards and red cards as he had appearances for Wednesday. Uh, you know, it was just—it was just an interesting bunch, and um, I think it was really the the beginning of that. That sort of—it wasn't quite social media, I, I, I guess, at that time, but message boards were the first throw of that I, I suppose we maybe had myspace at that stage i don't think facebook was had sort of got its hooks into the world um i do vividly remember i've got a friend who went to an oxbridge university i can never remember which one and that is my choice to do that and constantly refer to it as oxbridge rather than uh, remembering whether he went to oxford or cambridge and uh, and it's you know it's an important part of our friendship that i don't remember um <laughs> keeps him grounded keeps me sane it's it's uh it's good um but uh, i remember him talking about the facebook we've all got our the facebook pages um so that i think that was some time afterwards though um but uh, so 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 you'd have stuff like john paul mcgovern would be would pop on to al's talk i think Craig Rocastle's sister posted something when people were not being very nice about Craig Rocastle, um, which was always, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, there was just this, it was that kind of first thing where you actually were a little bit closer to the players than maybe you, you would have been previously. They weren't just remote figures. They were, they were slightly more real. Um, so that was, that was quite an important thing for me. And I, I engaged in sort of hours online, hours talk, um, and that all sort of happened around this this period of time. And Cardiff, the, the, the day in Cardiff felt so far away for so much of that season because Chris Turner really started off almost re- a relegation season. You know, he he was doing pretty badly. Um, and Sturrock slowly turned things around. I think he hit a tro- there was the team hit a tremendous run of form around Christmas time, uh, which which really thrust us sort of into the conversation playoff wise. But before that, it wasn't even really a, a possibility, re- not not realistic one. So um, yeah, with with my work, uh, we ended up. I worked for the Welsh Development Agency. Uh, they had the box, one of the boxes on the halfway line at the Cardiff, uh, the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff. So uh, when we we actually got that day to to work, uh, so we we were sort of had a group of um, businessmen from the the Welsh electronics uh, industry that we were entertaining that day, and I was trying to keep under wraps my enormous you know heart bursting fandom. Um, and the way that game played out, uh, that whole day was incredible. But uh, the way that game played out, uh, it was impossible to to hold it in. <laughs> By the end, I was just shouting and jumping around because uh, it was so tense. Um, and we, you know, we talked about in the in the in my favourite goals that roll of the dice moment, making those three changes again, a very sturricky sort of thing to do, um, and it working. You know, Talbot wins the penalty, Talbot scores the the kind of crowning goal at the end, and things like that. It was uh, 
it was just it was just a, a wonderful wonderful day to be a part of and gloriously sunny um my sister Suze, who i talk about sometimes here she's she's who i you know she has to listen to me talk through games all the time unfortunately for her. um <laughs> that was her season of getting into football uh properly and um taking wednesday to heart and um she had to sit with the Hartlepool fans because we couldn't go and join those queues in in Sheffield to get tickets. Um, so my good friend John uh, took her along to to the match, and they sat quietly on their hands throughout the game. <laughs> but oh. by the end, there was nobody there, so they could celebrate. <laughs> there was just a few Wednesday fans in amongst the uh, the Hartlepool fans uh, that, that were left to kind of catch eyes and go, "Oh, that was a bit good, wasn't it?" <laughs> so yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did take note of uh, Sturrock gave a, a sort of <laughs> he gave a, a team talk which um, I, I sort of so he said before the game he recalls the players were all tetchy and bickering with each other mm-hmm. you could tell they were worried so I sat down and gave them a wee speech just to break the ice I talked about everything apart from the game I talked about myself actually how I was nearly 50 years old how when I ate bread I got heartburned <laughs> How sex wasn't as good as it used to be. They were all looking at me like I was an alien. Then at the end, I said, this is a day to be enjoyed. You've got all those things coming to you. So just live for today and enjoy it while you're young. Uh, we had a good laugh and a laugh about it. And uh, they definitely it definitely took the pressure off them before we went out. And I just made a note under that said, one day you will have erectile dysfunction like me. So go and win. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I just love, love that bit as well. I thought it was around there as well. I'm scrambling through my notes while you're getting through it. That's just, okay. just the, the the piece of absolute, you know, legend. Of, <laughs> to use a word that's not actually a word. But the other, so the, 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 the cap to the day, which is also covered like in a lovely way in the book, is the because everybody was heading up north from cardiff the roads were jam-packed uh, after the game and it felt like everybody was a wednesday fan uh and some fans were lucky enough that the, the team needed to stop off for you know for a was and uh whatever else and uh, you know there's just those great scenes there was videos around the time of of the 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 team bringing the the trophy out with them to the to the service station and taking the trophy out on the road because it was completely deadlocked nothing was moving um so just the day just kept being good <laughs> basically until till about birmingham um when when the traffic dissipated a bit it, it just sort of elongated that good feeling all the way through and i think we had in in my little ponto at the time we had the windows open and the sunroof open and we were playing hi-ho silver lining uh, as loud as we could uh, and to to our enjoyment and the people that were around us as well so yeah a fabulous fabulous day all right banging, banging it out in the ponto banging it out venomous ridge um i do want to say at one moment i kind of took a little soups on i found myself heavily identifying with a footballer for the first time which i thought was something i'm i'm very much a bit of a can be sometimes I think I'm a bit of a kind of social introvert mm. where I kind of sent on the introvert extrovert kind of scale. The bit I found I really identified with Steve McLean after the game and Steve McLean being interviewed and saying, well, I'm a big safe, I'm a big softy and I get a bit emotional with things like that. Mm. Back in the dressing room, I put a towel over my head so none of the boys could see me and just sat and took it in for a few minutes. Yes. Yeah, that was lovely. It's a, so that, that period of time was, was, was wonderful. And then obviously,
obviously. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so the next chapter is called Cretins and Scum. So, uh, as Luke alluded to, the shine of that day quite quickly wore off. Um, yeah. How do you feel about you were kind of, you know, a lot more kind of directly kind of focusing on things than I was at this time? Just the fact that I think I was aware of this previously, the fact that, you know, there were players released very quickly from their contracts after yeah historic even talks about sort of doing it doing it the next day doesn't he uh mm. some some players had to come in the day after the the playoff final and uh get told that uh, they weren't going to be there any longer um i think i i know historic was one that was I remember the season he was talking about, even during the sort of playoff run, uh, but particularly during the summer, that how the playoffs put you behind schedule. Um, yes. so, so the teams that know they're going to be promoted have two or three weeks to to put things in place, and if you, obviously if you run away with it, you've got an, an awful lot longer to, uh, to to consider things. So so that's uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it was a, it was a, it's a bit of a strange time. Uh, I. That's so. We talked about how Dave Allen, his whole purpose was to try and run the club like a like a business. So that uh, you know, hopefully, it turned a profit, but at least didn't lose money year on year. Um, and that meant we had to have a really strictly controlled budget. Um, I I think one of the things that that plays into what started to happen really is that 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 Allen's relationship with the fans got worse and worse, and and publicly worse and worse. Uh, and I I th- I think a part of it might well have been the he didn't like the popularity of Storrock. I'm not sure how well they ever got on. The book doesn't say that they didn't get on. But you think you're kind of reading between the lines there with that, and then I, I remember the feeling kind of felt yeah, at, that, at that time itself. I remember the feeling at the time being that. Alan felt that Sturrock sort of got too much praise for what he'd done and was a bit resentful of it. I don't know. I don't know whether that's the case. I mean, as I say, the, the book certainly doesn't go into any detail about that. But that's that was definitely a bit of the feeling at the time. Sturrock wasn't given much to much help in terms of the budget. We signed the, along in a, you know another in a long line of Francis Jeffers uh, was was was. Uh, David Graham, who was a guy who'd had one good season about six seasons ago and had done nothing since. And I think we paid a fairly reasonable sum for him, but he was terrible, outright awful. At first it was like, oh, he's got no confidence. And then we saw enough to say, no, he's just not good. He's just lost whatever he had. He doesn't have any more. And maybe he never had it in first <laughs> So those, you're forced into those sort of gambles. And I think when Stoke was allowed to spend a bit of money, generally he did a good job. The, the strikers that bailed us out that season were Dion Burton and Marcus Tudgay. And both of those were real the bargain basement purchases, but we got tremendous value out of them. They were great servants to the club, both of them. Uh, I, I I loved Dion Burton, actually. I think he had so much sort of class to his game. And Tudgay, not a natural striker by any stretch, but certainly, you know, I think he punched above his weight in terms of his ability. He worked hard and got some really good goals. Mm. 
Although I wouldn't say he was a natural goal scorer in any way. He's um, a really interesting kind of footballer, is Marcus Dudgo. Yes. One one of very few that kind of stayed around our level, maybe even sort of st- stayed in the championship when we went down, I think. You know, there's there's not many players that have gone to a level above where we play or uh, or even stayed at our level when we've sold them or released them. <laughs> In the, in the last mm. few years, most of the time they go downwards and sometimes they go down rapidly. But basically, so despite sort of surviving in the first year, um, Stoic had a had a poor start to the second season in the championship and uh, was, was let go off. Uh, and that's where Brian Laws came in. So when did you sort of, because was it the, was it the, uh, did you start sort of picking up interest again and then the Coca-Cola thing happened or did the Coca-Cola thing happen and that sort of piqued your interest? I don't know if the Coca-Cola thing had any kind of uh, relevance on what it was. I can um, I can probably find out and tell you actually the first game that I kind of came back. Um, I just wonder because where, where we sort of bumped into, we, we'd been, we'd had a passing acquaintance uh, at, a, at a music festival or two. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> But really, you know, things things got a popping in terms of our our, our personal, you know, relationship, friendship. Uh, when we we would win the the Coca Cola tickets to to games, and we'd end up sat next to each other, and it happened quite a bit. <laughs> yes. Um, so actually, my first game back from my sabbatical, I think, was a nil nil dour home draw against Charlton Athletic. Um, I think it was around the time that uh, Laws had brought in Enoch Shawumni. Oh. Um, so it was some real dizzy times that I was kind of brought back in. <laughs> and hilariously, actually, that got the bug to bring me back into, I think it was the next kind of night game I went to with my oldest brother. Andy was, um, I think it was a home draw against Coventry. I think it was a game where actually we were playing uh, Jermaine Johnson at right back. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And he dropped a clanger for their goal. And then we managed to, uh, you know, score a spawny last minute kind of draw in that. And then it's a classic image of uh, Brian Laws consoling Jermaine Johnson, which uh, something lodged in my memory, but really at the back, I had to really kind of scramble that out from the archives <laughs> to talk about so that. Would... And, and a picture I'd like to see more of, actually. <laughs> would that have been Laws's second season then? His, his first full season? Yeah. It was. So I, I missed the, uh, I missed the plucky, the plucky surge that yes. we had yeah. on the Laws. Okay. Well, so in the background of of what was going on on the pitch obviously uh there was all this sort of hubbub and and talk about takeovers uh the the closest of those being uh Paul Quinn and it was sort of announced in the local press that this was going to happen there was a press conference going to be you know it was going to happen at whatever seven o'clock at night or, or or you know I can't remember the exact time of this press conference but you know this was it was announced by the, the club there's going to be a press conference uh and that press conference was apparently to announce that there was no no takeover and that the press were bad for reporting it and it was the fans fault for it not being a takeover um basically a lot of finger pointing and and and, and blame being cast around by by dave allen um including the infamous venomous bitch comment calling people cretins and scum uh, which in the book he claims tries to claim he was talking about just a small minority uh, within the fans group. Certainly wasn't clear that that was the case at the time. Uh, if that's what he meant to say, he did a pretty bad job of saying that. Uh, <laughs> 
but that was really the kind of that was things coming to a boil in terms of the relationship between this man who was the chairman and the the fans and not just i would say it wasn't just a minority of the fans i think there was a large amount of ill feeling towards the chairman at that time and that press conference certainly didn't help in any way um and the most bizarre chapter uh, forgive me i'm sort of struggling to to place where it is in terms of you know what's happening in in fo- the footballing terms but the most b- bizarre chapter was uh, falls under the chapter um in the book of saloon bar moanings and this was where the club extraordinarily you know unprecedented sued several members of its own fan base <laughs> Uh, based on comments they made on, in particular, Al's talk. Uh, so how how aware were you of that when it was happening? I was kind of outside of that, I must imagine. Mm. So so that must have been that transition sort of period, I guess. Or maybe you just weren't... Because there's this thing, isn't there? There's being a fan. You can be an absolute wholehearted fan and not engage with any of the politics. And it's something I used to be deeply engaged with, the politics of the football club. I think I'm less in, engaged with it now than I used to be. But there's always that element going on with, with our club. I don't know if it's the same at other football clubs. But there's always some boardroom intrigue. There's something to dig into on that on that level. But these were fairly standard kind of comments that were being made, um, yeah. and a kind of hotshot lawyer from the def- you know the defence point of view was just irked by the way that the libel laws were being used by rich people to to effectively bully uh, other people into submission. Uh, so he took on the matter. Is in particular, it was Grandad uh, on Al's talk. Uh, Nigel Short's his real name. Uh, it's still bizarre. All these years later, it was so weird to read those names. Having been a regular member of Al's talk, it was so strange to read those names in newspapers at the time. It's really weird still to read them in a, in a proper printed book as well. But um, Vaughan, uh, DJ Mortimer. <laughs> and a couple of others um, basically were being sued by the club that they loved for fairly innocuous sort of comments the sort of things that you'd say in the pub without ever thinking about it's just normal talk the only difference here is obviously it's it's written down in the form of a message board uh, which I guess gives something that you can kind of wave in someone's face but um, it, it it felt at the time an utterly bizarre thing to be doing. It was costing the club money at a time when we didn't have very much. Um, and just such a wrong-headed thing to do. And it showed absolutely that the people at the top of the club just did not understand how this football thing works. What a bizarre undertaking. Exactly. And I mean, I, I guess the interesting thing for me is I kind of came in and kind of became aware of what was kind of going on. But it was something that dra- how long did this thing drag on for it? It went on for a long time, right? Yeah, well, that's one of the things that was particularly particularly sort of cruel because the club almost at every stage dragged things. So if they, I think they had two years from the initial kind of serving of papers or whatever the English parlance of that is. Uh, they took all of that time before then progressing to the next stage, which meant for the folks who were involved on the other side of that, it just went on and on for such a long time. And um, Grandad, Nigel Short, who was the, the person that, that was involved for the longest time with it, um, he was actually undergoing treatment for, for throat cancer at the same time. So mm. not only is it sort of just on its face morally pretty awful 
to, to, to sort of go through that extra layer and still push on with it really takes a level of kind of pernickety knobheadedness that i mean it's hard to fathom being the person that thinks that's a good move uh one of the things to to brian laws's credit he was named on some of the paperwork and originally and as soon as he saw that he he said i don't want anything to do with this i um i I will not be involved in suing the fans of a club that i manage um but none of the rest of them had that same uh, desire to, to to not be associated with the action. So all of the board and Cavan Walker were, were were named personally in in those papers that were were served against members of the fan base, um, and it, it dragged on for a number of years. Uh, so we actually didn't we were boycotting games uh, for, for a period of that time because we didn't want to be funding legal action against our own fans. Um, <clears throat> So the only matches I would get along to were ones that I was able to see for free, thanks to uh, the good folks at Coca-Cola, <laughs> because they gave away tickets to every game for a period of time. Uh, and it turns out it was pretty easy to win <laughs> tickets <laughs> and, a, and a training day experience. Indeed, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so I guess that's kind of an interesting kind of step in maybe going into that direction was the fact that um, pretty easy to win tickets. Uh, I would often kind of give it a routine kind of spam. Um, I think I remember having a picture of kind of like uh, my my pad at work where the bottom drawer was open out and it was actually filled with empties, empties of 500 milliliter um, cherry Coca-Cola bottles. Nice. Nice. And that's probably a kind of sign of my real addiction and a real kind of low point. But alas, in my 20s, I could still drink as much nice sugary pop as I like and still say as felt <laughs> as possible. Something that doesn't really happen these days. Anyway, um, so <laughs> managed to... you got for different things? Remember points? I do remember points. He covered different things. I think a 500 million was a, was a, um, that was a two pointer. A can was one point, a 330 million can. Yeah. And a two liter vat, uh, as I used to sometimes jokingly call it, was about three points. I think it was. Nice. And some of the multi packs, you did get like 10 points. Actually, I did used to, I used to do like a 10 pack and then could open, could open the box to, uh, get those 10 points. <laughs> Yeah, so I absolutely swamped it, and then Rich and I managed to win a um, a training day, which yeah. hilariously Rich didn't realise. I didn't really actually fully explain to Rich that we wouldn't actually be running around <laughs> with footballers. At first, I thought we were going to be making the follow-up to uh, the Denzel Washington movie, which may or may not have happened at that stage. Um, <laughs> and then, then I thought we were going to be training with the team. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, it's... Uh, it, I think I think we got to about eight out of ten games. Uh, me and Sue's, we got their pair of tickets, and they very quickly realised that these were not sort of fancy corporate people. So we went from picking them up in the uh, in the sort of main reception to to shuttled away to the to the ticket office with the rest of the plebs because yeah. uh, we, we clearly weren't the right sort of folks to be seen in reception. <laughs> <laughs> they wear shirts and things. Frightful. So, <laughs> so I guess I was going to bring up that that training day. Um, so that was a real fun kind of experience for us. But I think the the fun thing, well, not the less fun thing about it was was we had that day, and I remember the next day plastered over the front page of the Star was that Wednesday we're going to be in some quite serious kind of money issues. So the the character we should introduce between the the suing the fans and the days in court is Mr. Lee Strafford. Exactly. Yes, we are jumping ahead of ourselves here. 
Well, only just. <laughs> it's all a muddle. But so like Laws is there. Laws is in place uh, when Strafford comes in. Um, Cavan Walker is a particular sort of figure through this period. One of the things Strafford did was get rid of Cavan Walker. Um, and there's a lovely story about Laws's reaction to that. Can you sort of remember the details of that, Luke? We did. I think we put that actually it was in the first. I think that was actually in the first part. And oh. that kind of jumps ahead. And that Laws kind of reached over and gave uh, Strafford a pat on the shoulder and said, if that's the only thing you do, that's the best best decision you've made. Yes. Words to that Apolo- effect. Apologies if we're, we're treading over ourselves a little bit. It's... Um, that's the that's the way of history, especially a history in Sheffield Wednesday's case that seems to repeat itself again and again. So Lee Strafford came in with Nick Parker, um, kind of surprising because the, the things have gone quite stale. Um, Dave Allen sort of resigned from the board, but for a number of months left a vacuum at the top of the club. So we went from having this unpopular figurehead, but a figurehead all the same, to nobody. Um, and then Lee Strafford was involved, and and basically the story with him was he'd he'd started Plusnet and sold it for a lot of money to BT. So he was, you know, he was rich. He he said a lot at the time, and he says a lot in the book, that he never needed to work again. Uh, <laughs> so he sort of wanted to take the time to, to see what he could do to help the football club that he loved. Um, and some interesting moves in his tenure. You know, I think he's an interesting figure, historically. Mm. Um, so one of the big things was... Uh, for instance, giving away the sponsorship of the cl- of the of the kit to the Sheffield Children's Hospital and donating a, a, a pound, I think it was, for every kit sold or something like that. So yes, two pounds it for was. Every kit sold. Yeah. Um, which you know, on the face of it, is a wonderful gesture and as a sort of PR move, it's a great thing. <laughs> but I think the tricky thing is there's a lot of there's a lot of initial promise with Stratford and then the kind of you know the day after sort of thing of our of our training day is almost a bit of a an echo to the day after with Stratford because it's like okay but when it actually comes down to the brass tax of it that's quite an expensive thing to do because we gave up money in terms of the the sponsorship and then we also had to pay money out and that was one of the bills that contributed towards us sort of being on our knees was was the, the children's hospital needing the thousands of pounds that that, uh, that they were owed from this arrangement. Um, but in, so initially, what I, I remember being bowled over by him, you know, saying dude all the time, quite a fun sort of character to have around. Very, very happy to talk to any journalist that would uh, would listen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some, as I say, some bright, bright sparks and seeing the plans for the ground if we if we managed to win the, the World Cup bid. Uh, that, was, that was still a very fond memory, that video, the CGI. Mm. Hillsborough, what could have been. <laughs> but I think that the thudding sort of reality of that is being that that cost a heck of a lot of money. You just, that's the tricky thing. I, I just, I don't know that we were in the right position for, for what Stratford was bringing to us. So how, how uh, so I guess the interesting thing, I was a big Stratford fan. I was a fan of what he was trying to achieve, but it needed, it was, took a lot of work to turn you know, this, you know, Titanic ship, you know, the turning circle on it was pretty huge and took a lot, you know, would need a lot of financial fam- power from the fans to kind of turn things around because that was kind of the mentality. It was basically like, look, you are now the lifeblood of all the finance for this club. The club is essentially yours. But 
has to be kind of be done through you know revenue streams and season ticket money i mean and that's a similar kind of mentality to what we've kind of got now with chancery mm. there's just probably a different approach and a different kind of level of tact that's kind of taken with it uh, and maybe you could argue a similar gamble that's failed in both cases like l- what we need to do is get more season ticket holders and if we can get more season ticket holders then we're able to do x y and z but in order for x y and z to happen we kind of need to gamble that those season ticket holders will come and having done x y and z when the season ticket numbers didn't bear that out then you're in a real a real hole <laughs> it's real troublesome t- tr- troublesome times um it's just i i d- I didn't know some of the figures, like the fact, you know, we paid Cavan Walker 300,000. So, yeah, yeah, that's a good, you know, the, the moment, you know, with Brian Laws patting him on the shoulder and saying that's the best thing you've done. I don't know if Brian Laws would know that, you know, that's basically the price of a striker uh, in those days. Mm. Would did did Brian Laws know that that cost him you know a, a player and then the 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 World Cup bid four hundred almost half a million pounds basically four hundred ten thousand spent on the bid I know Stratford sort of denies those numbers but that's what was in the books about it so two hundred two thousand in uh, two thousand nine two thousand ten two two hundred eight thousand in two thousand ten two thousand eleven it, it's just I don't know it's 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 just hard not to feel a little bit jaded about the experience afterwards. Um, and and the, there's a, I, I, I did enjoy reading through the book and I think it's definitely a worthwhile endeavor to, to sort of for folks to sort of have a read for themselves. But I was, I felt reading it that the folks that he spent a long time with had had a real influence on the story he told. And I suppose you don't, we, there's that sort of old adage, isn't there? There's my side, your side, my side and the truth. Mm. And it's like, I suppose, how do you decide what the truth is? But I know as a fan, I felt like some of the Dave Allen stuff, we were being told the Dave Allen spin, you know, PR machine version of events. And it felt that same way with Stratford a little bit. Like we were getting what Stratford wanted. I mean, that's that's really interesting, though, because I didn't actually feel any kind of great effect from... I mean, even, you know, and I think last time, I think I kind of said, you know, last time we we did this and talked about the part one um, podcast episode, you know, I I said I felt the more sympathetic towards Dave Allen, but not quite words to those effects. Just saying actually kind of on paper, running the club with a very kind of tight financial leash was quite good considering like, I guess now we're looking at from a mentality of we have a giant wage bill and we are doing terribly for exponentially to our wages like we're not getting the value for what we're doing for what we're paying for this right now so the question is what i kind of said last week is you know if you lowball it sometimes you know sometimes you do quite well or sometimes it's it's it is relevant but it's disappointing you know it's incredibly disappointing and poor when you're paying such huge fortunes and you're getting nothing in return yeah probably I'd Probably maybe point. we were kind of, and I guess, I guess I think I said last time, I think there were two very decent kind of managerial appointments from Paul Sturrock. Sorry, for, for, in Paul Sturrock and Brian Laws from yeah. Dave But saying that, like, it's still staggering the PR misfires and backfires. It's not even a misfire. It's actually just pure backwards. It just, it absolutely just, it actively... It's actively disengaged. I mean, to use like a really awful kind of um, business kind of mentality, there's talk about kind of engagement in workplaces. Mm. 
and there's a talk about you know you're either the um there's the people who are rowing the boat there's the people who aren't kind of rowing the boat and there's the people who are kind of seen as the pirates type thing who are actually actually trying to you know willfully actually fuck things up basically and actually be at the the back of the ship kind of like soaring it off to use this kind of like analogy yeah like it's more of that kind of level it's just not good like it's not sounds a bit kind of airy fairy and a bit hoity-toity to be using this kind of language but it's not it's not win-win really no no. it's very much kind of me against the fans like nothing is ever done to actually unify to kind of at least offer kind of uh, a little bit of something to kind of unify the fan base with what dave allen's thinking i mean he's a very acerbic character you know i think a part of it is he doesn't understand a football fan he's not one so i don't I think you have to have some empathy to be on a level with people. And if you see yourself as so much better than them and above them, I don't think you can ever sort of have a have a conversation as a kind of equal or, you know, meet them eye to eye and, and get yeah. an understanding from and them because you don't want to. You don't, you don't are, actually care about their opinion. No, I mean, these are things that, <clears throat> as football fans, we are maddeningly... It's, it's a maddening amplification of emotions beyond any sense of reason mm. really and this is sometimes a problem we have as football fans is that we're so enthralled we're so into this that we don't sometimes have the collective calm to think what are we actually getting upset about and what actually how does this kind of relate in the matter to everything and what we want to achieve but you can't really have somebody who's of the same mentality. I think it's difficult to have someone who's a fan in Lee Stratford. Probably be that because I think he did remarkably well with how he conducted and how he held himself, considering but he was probably still kind of the whim of some of those emotions that fans have. I probably feel the same for Dejvon. I feel that Mr. Chancery is very... He's a very emotional man. Mm. So I can probably identify, but I probably don't think that's a good thing to have. It's not the best mindset to have. As not a the best mindset to have as a fan. And then you've got someone who's mainly just seemingly so confrontational in Dave Allen. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Because I think... <laughs> that's something... Think... Sorry, just to finish sorry, off. That's no, something sorry, that... Sorry. It's really just going to stoke the fire, and that's not what you need. I think inherently, though, at the heart of it, and, and we've watched, um, you know, the the, the Sunderland till I die feeds into this a little bit. Football clubs don't aren't businesses; they don't behave like businesses. I, I think what happens is these businessmen of varying degrees of success. They fancy trying their hand at football for whatever reason. There'll be lots of different reasons, probably several complex reasons. Um, you, you know, they, they want a bit of ad- adulation. Um, they yeah. want to test themselves. Whatever you know, whatever the reasons are, they'll, and they'll be multivarious. Um, I mean, I kind of wonder about this. I'm sorry to interrupt again, Rich, but no, it's um, fine. like I wonder about the fact that we talk about. Both you and I are huge fans of John Ronson, mm. and um, just again, I want to give a shout out to uh, to Rich's impression of John Ronson, <laughs> and uh, what we did on one of the earlier podcast episodes. Sorry, break, hey, baby, but that was fantastic. 
And so, you know, talk about like the kind of sociopaths of the world and yeah. sociopaths and, the, you know, this, this seemingly 1% of people who are kind of psychologically inclined not to really give a fuck about anybody at all. They're actually very successful in business because, the, you know, to have that kind of very kind of rampant disregard for people kind of puts people in a position to be quite successful. Yeah. So thinking about that and not being, you know, not wanting to kind of applaud people who have a mental illness effectively <laughs> i i think a little bit like you have to be kind of a little bit distanced right you have to be a little bit distant so i never you have to be a, a little bit distanced maybe and like i've said to not get caught up in that kind of some of the emotions that kind of come in in running a football club uh, yeah i i suspect it's it's more of a like um, you know, to you know, dial a cliche, uh, one of these like it takes a village kind of things because I, I think just being a businessman is a bad idea in the same way that just being a fan is a bad idea. And I think what you need is a, a mixture of people who really live the game and people who, on the other side of things, are you know brilliantly astute businessmen and probably a plethora of people in in between. Because I think what's the thing is, is if you look at a football football clubs don't behave like businesses. And you look at the Premier League. Like a businessman would look and go, like Manchester City, for instance, as a business, as a business, what is that an abject failure? That like they they lose money all the time. But as a football club, they're massively successful. So. I think like even at the top end of football, nobody's making loads and loads of money, maybe apart from Man United. But then you could argue that they're a failure in terms of a football club. It's a really bizarre <laughs> it's a it's a bizarre sort of dichotomy because I don't think you can be a good business and a good football club. That's true. Yeah. So coming in and being like, oh, I'm a local businessman. I I own, uh, you know, I own a couple of dog tracks and a casino and a nightclub. I can run a business. I'd run. I know the entertainment business. Uh, immediately, it's like, well, you don't know anything about football. Just like what? There'll be some bits of that you can bring to bear, but you know, nightclubs make a lot of money because they go to the cash and carry and buy all the booze that goes off on Tuesday on a Thursday night and sell it for a pound a bottle and they've made they bought it for 20p a bottle and so they've made 80p on every bottle and they've sold all of them how does that work in the context of a football club <laughs> do you know what I mean it's like mm-hmm. there'll be some compatible skills but it's not a like for like in any way and I I, I just don't I, I don't know because this is the thing you the, what's so fascinating to me about the book is the times where we draw back from the Wednesday picture. So the Wednesday picture is wasteful, throwing good money after bad, lots of bad decisions, spending more than you bring in. And then the few times that we pull away and look at Wednesday in the context of their league, we're actually spending less than almost everybody else. So we're wasteful, <laughs> we're badly managed, but we're but still... We're still not spending enough. Yeah, yeah. because... The, Wage bill is, is basically the biggest indicator of where a club will finish. Um, the, the, I found the, the fascinating article that talks about Sturrock in this context. It was when he ended up at South End because somebody, the guy who did Freakonomics and then did Sockonomics, produced a list of the top 10 best managers ever in terms of outperforming their wage bill. And I think Paul Sturrock was seventh or eighth. So he's on a list with... Isn't Brian Law's feature quite highly on that as well? I don't think he's in the top 10, Brian Law's, but he's definitely he's definitely quite high up as well. But it's actually very rare that managers outperform their wage bill. They're, it's pretty much, if you pay the most wages, you're going to win the league. You're pretty, exactly, I know. But then 
the heartbreak when it it kind of you know it should work it should work that we pay but then you can't just pay seemingly there's a thing against this which is basically even if i give even if tomorrow i gave i don't know who am i gonna say who am i gonna pick up (laughs) from this kind of analogy if i paid alex hunt 20 grand a week it doesn't mean that alex hunt is going to put in 20 grand a week performances so uh, no it, it, it's not but i think wages are a better indicator of performance than transfer spend because all the time clubs pay too much for someone like alex hunt and get much lower value performances from them but sure. let much less often do people get a wage that's entirely unearned I, it does happen and you're right. It's not a. It's not a. Um, it's not the answer just to spend more money on whatever. Just kind of going back to Stratford and just kind of uh, yes. going back to this kind of sense of timeline of what we're looking at here. The thing that I found interesting was I. I don't think we had, did we ever realize at the time that there was this kind of shortfall of cash that was happening in that uh, in that season? Was that the what season was that? Was that nine ten? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was nine ten. So basically. We tried to expand the wage budget. Um, they had more season tickets. There was a real kind of collective kind of pulling together. There was a lot of optimism going into that season. Felt like the PR was going well. Felt like there was a degree of being, you know, Wednesday fans being connected to the football club. Maybe some people would disagree and kind of go against Lee Strafford. But I kind of felt that kind of thrill. And I mean, that's when me and you actually got our season tickets. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I remember going up and kind of, um, you know, feeling that real kind of optimism and going up with the Wednesday night director, John Gaff, who would, um, someone from Wednesday night would volunteer to be at the club, you know, on certain days. And you would go and then say, you know, and they would just be there voluntarily just for the love of the club on standby. And they'd be like, do you want to take him up to go look at the seats? And I remember going up and, you know, you know, the hilarious kind of trying on of the pants, you know, with a tailor. (laughs) With me and John Gaff kind of being like, well, do you want to sit here? And then, like, you know, just go and move over kind of five or a seven or eight seat. <laughs> what do you think that looks like? And then you look out across the field, which is being plowed, and, you know, seeds are planted. The seeds are being planted. And, you know, I remember us getting those seats in the North Stand, kind of just parallel with the penalty box. Yes. You know, the cusp of the penalty area from um, on the cop side. And, um, yeah it felt like happy days it felt like there was you know we were getting on there we brought it we seemed to bring in the creme de la creme of uh you talk about kind of large stats but uh was it tommy miller who had a ridiculous who had penalty some scoring. kind of ridiculous penalty scoring and also like general kind of scoring from a certain rage stat, which was kind of ridiculous i must say uh tommy miller you know darren purse and was there someone else as well? We've we heard of all of them, haven't we? I think. Yeah. Teal as well? No, Teal was the next year. Teal next year. So, you know, and it, it just, you know, reading the book, there's come up a lot of highs and a lot of lows. But coming back and reading the fact that Tommy Miller wasn't really what, wasn't really the answer, <laughs> wasn't really much value again on, you know, the intense bargain basement performances of, <laughs> you know, James O'Connor, James O'Connor, and Sean McAllister, who effectively yeah. were similar players. Outside. Yeah, and Darren Purse, who kind of came in, who kind of was part of that uh, rocking the boat with Richard Wood, which yeah, 
was a bad kind of that was a very bad kind of ending to Richard Wood's time at the club and I still don't kind of fully understand that was an interesting one for looking at for the sake of PR it's not really covered in the club you know in the anywhere in this book but that was a real kind of PR battle between seemingly between Richard Wood and maybe Richard Wood was putting some stuff out in the media and his agents and the club itself it was it was it was a bad war, which ended very, very badly. It was yes. selling a player under value and then also having that kind of, yeah, rocking that equilibrium between um, the fairly good kind of defensive record, even for a law side that was quite attacking. You know, we seemed to kind of capitulate and go backwards, even after signing Darren Purse, who seemed to be a bit of a rock. Yeah, I, it was a strange time. I, I picked out a, um, a really... I, I, I just wrote on, after this, what a crushing sentence. Um, so it said, the main signing that summer had been combative midfielder James O'Connor, free from Burnley. And over the previous year and a half or so, Laws had lost Maggie Bruguera, Chris Brunt and Glenn Whelan. <laughs> just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. And we also signed Jimmy Smith as well. Uh, oh, Chelsea's Chelsea they? reserve squad reserve star who apparently we signed for a season and then apparently actually no he was actually gone after six months and it, it didn't really break our hearts because he was terrible <laughs> he was <laughs> absolutely awful <laughs> probably the most disappointing signings one of the most disappointing signings in kind of recent Wednesday memory I, I remember uh, Lewis Baker being very disappointing yeah and then actually seemingly had some better kind of days after that loan spell i think as well yeah but i remember him coming in the videos being like he can take set pieces with both feet depending on what's the best for each scenario and he scores all sorts of goals he gets headers he scores from 30 yards out and it just he was just such a nothing midfielder <laughs> He just looks completely overwhelmed playing at Hillsborough. Oh, dear. There was a lot of that, though. We were like Sven Joran Eriksson, but with loan signings around that period of time. You know how Sven has, has like, almost hundreds of people that were given one cap? And uh, we had so many players on loan for, like, a month here, a month there, and just the names just keep going when you're reading those chapters. Started with Sturrock. He had a lot of loans in for just a month. But, Pete, you know, the... um, the Honourable Feeney and um, Bartos Luzarski was another one. They're just name after name of these weird random people that we got on loan for ben, a bit. Ben Sahar. Oh, yeah. Frank Songo. Frank Songo. Nearly got headbutted for doing um, a bit Rainbow too much kick. fancy Dan work. Rainbow kick uh, showboating against QPR <laughs> didn't go down well. Yeah. Good times, good times, good times. Um, so, but I guess the interesting thing with that season was like, I wasn't really aware of that kind of financial hole, which apparently seemed to suck a lot of lifeblood, according to Stratford, out of Brian Laws. I mean, yeah. I remember being there for, um, you know, in my kind of Wednesday fanaticism pomp, going away to Leicester and seeing us absolutely capitulate under Brian Laws and felt like Brian Laws was very much saying goodbye to us that day and he was fired yeah. afterwards. He was such an emotional manager and that, I think that was one of his strengths mm. that he engaged so much emotionally and that's the sad thing with the chapter is Brian Laws is just getting one knock after another and still pulling rabbits out of the hat for most of that time mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's pretty sad for to read from from Laws's perspective. Um, such a sort of bright, sunny start to things, uh, and obviously his sunny disposition that feeds into it, and then just one knock after another. Um, so 
this is where so the so chapter 16 to sort of pull us back to the to the book a little bit um more directly is where we cover those those wind up or winding up orders in the in the court um this is just was just a shocking time wasn't it so we had our as we say we had our training day then there was the first sort of official brush with hmrc uh just uh the the uh, <laughs> I picked out this bit. So this is Howard Wilkinson. Howard Wilkinson is is someone that came around at the set, back around at the same time as uh, Strafford and uh, and Nick Parker. But said so Wilkinson knew uh, knew that uh, well. He got on the phone. We'd reached the eleventh hour. We we're about to be wound up. You clutch at straws, you know. Recalls Wilkinson at the time, and I had to use imaginative ways which we won't talk about here, to persuade them, the bank, to help. I'm not going to go into what I said, but my arguments to persuade them to help us out and pay HMRC were verging on blackmail looking back. What the heck did Howard Wilkinson say to the co-op bank to blackmail them? (laughs) What did he have on them? Did you remember the did you remember the Netflix Fire Festival documentary? (laughs) Yes. Do you remember the um the very sweet um, yes. chap who was basically <laughs> offering the, offering some authorities to have a bit of to get water. Like, yeah, he's going to uh, tease them and have a bit of uh, sexual. He's offering fellatio for uh, fellatio <laughs> for some water. Yeah, I, I had some weird kind of tones of that when that kind of came in. <laughs> very well. That's taken on very, a different note. It does take a different note. It's World probably not really to fair. his knees. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That it kind of came across from what he said, but I'm not implying that that was something he did. And the co-op said, "I'll pay HMRC for you not to do this." <laughs> <laughs> did you find within those times? I can't remember where exactly it was. I just kind of wanted to possibly jump back. Um, Darren Purse is interviewed, and yes. one of the bits he says that Darren Purse recalls the team were the team perhaps were affected by the off-field events. Players always say that they aren't aware of things like that, he says. But you knew what was going on. When you're involved in that situation, you try to say all the right things to the press. We don't know what's going on. We just want to concentrate on the football. But of course, it's going to affect you. You're always aware of it. Mm. Which it makes absolute sense, doesn't it? It is one of those things where managers and players never pass comment on those things, do they? They always say they're not paying attention to it. But of course, it's going to affect you. We all, you know, we've all got to think about our, our own personal situations and our, you know, getting paid and things like that is is pretty high on the top of lists of priorities. So yeah, undoubtedly, it's going to have an effect. I, I would, uh, you'd be amazed if it didn't. But it it does add into that thing of footballers being aloof and things like that. Is is that sort of stock answer that they don't, you know, they don't engage with those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's intriguing. <laughs> so do we also remember having <clears throat> you're kind of talking about that kind of um period where we're going into the nigh financial apocalypse um i want to say that you and i probably have fond memories of that league one midweek playoff sorry midweek uh league one match against walsall where um it seemed like that was maybe the um the you know final kiss kiss goodbye to the football club and uh yes. we were we were there amongst a few other people down outside the um yeah. stand entrance and howard wilkinson scrambled out to uh you know abate fans fears and um talk about the biggest issue of the day why does gary teal have a two-seater bentley yes and i think was was that the um was that the remember the agm remember the agm as well <laughs> 
I don't know if I remembered that, but I wanted to bring that up to see what memories you've had of that during the kind of very financial kind of dark period which we had there. There was two. Uh, there were two nights where people were protesting, weren't there? I think because it was just to find. It, it, it. That's the thing is, like you're in the midst of all this Maya, and there was just the club went silent. The top of the club, we just stopped hearing from altogether, and I think that was after they'd got rid of. Stratford. So um, I think Wilkinson stepped in as part-time. Yes, because there is a bit of, um, definitely as you kind of say for the, you know, the Lee Stratford PR for the interview, but Lee Stratford does reveal that Nick Parker kind of stabbed him in the back in the meeting. Yes. yes. Yeah, Parker. Turn, turncoat Parker. <laughs> He's one of the baddies along with Cavan of the book. Those are the two main baddies. <laughs> But yeah, he sort of came out and gave a bit of a speech, didn't he? And I think there was another. I think I. I think following the next game, there was another sort of similar kind of sack the board type uh, meeting, and then a scramble to kind of find something to to save the club. So there's there's the talk about the one Wednesday fund. I do remember making a small contribution to that at the time, or a small pledge. Uh, um, so this is where, uh, the, towards the end of this, that what what sort of saves saves things really. Uh, the, the club supposedly had lots and lots of interest. Howard Wilkinson and Nick Parker are meeting with lots and lots of people. Um, there's the, the culmination of that was Nick Parker sort of crying outside the uh, the courts after the latest run in with the HMRC, mm-hmm. uh, where they sort of begged for. A, a couple more months to, to close things off. They said sort of things are getting serious with some parties. Uh, but reading the book, it feels like that was a bit of a gambit from him because at that time, yeah. we really didn't have any no. secure interest from anyone. No, it, it seemed like it was just rife with tire kickers. Yes. You know. So and, this is and, where... And, uh, and to shout out to uh, Lee Strafford, where else would Wednesday fans ever know the term FUD as well? Oh, of course, yeah. I thought FUD previously was just what uh, John Hanna would tell us that uh, co-op had in store for us uh, <laughs> if we would go down to their delightful <laughs> supermarket. Uh, didn't know that it was uh, supposed to be fear, uncertainty and doubt and FUDers. People uh, spread such lovely things. Mm. I believe in Scotland, it's got another meaning as well. It's for um, you know a lady's area. But um, there we go. It's all it's all good. Um, so <laughs> so basically, there's there's this you know things are coming to a head. The club is either going to get put out of business by the mounting bills from 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 the taxman, um, or, or we're going to find someone to sort of save us. And this is where. As Strafford tells it, what he did when there was real interest from, uh, you know, the character turns out to be Milan Mandaric, um, when there was real interest from him, what he, there was also interest from the, the current board to, to buy out the rest of the club, essentially, at a kind of cut price rate. So having run the club into the ground, they then profit from kind of buying up all the rest of the shares in this panic time. Um, and what Lee Strafford does is, in his words... Um, speak to the co-op and sort of say what's going to what they're trying to do um and encourage them that if they go with an outside source they're probably going to get paid some of their loan back um and if they go with the inside source probably they're not going to get very much back at all they're going to make sure they look after themselves so um so that that's the kind of you know the the crowning moment really for for lee strafford's story is is sort of offering his evidence up to the co-op and uh hopefully altering their actions and, and helping for the better for sheffield wednesday um Mandrich made deals all all round. Uh, so Dave Allen took some payment for the for the money that he'd been he'd put in. Um, co-op 
took a real big hit on the money that they'd loaned to the club but got something back they'd probably written off an awful large amount of it um <laughs> i did write down that there's a bit where they said that and a further seven hundred fifty thousand uh if premier league return was reached by the end of 2020 2021 um uh, and i just put we'll show them uh, <laughs> <laughs> but i remember being worried about you know i, I remember being part of wednesday night uh, and casting my vote to sell the shares but genuinely being a bit worried about the vote coming out in the in the right direction i remember that the the waiting for the announcement to come and being sure that we would do the do the right thing as as, as the fans in that situation but just never not quite knowing particularly as wednesday i had been so effectively cast as a bogeyman by uh, by dave allen during his his period as chairman <coughs> So, yeah, Milan Mandaric takes over. Milan Mandaric, and I felt all the excitement of reading the book of the kind of quell of bringing in Milan Mandaric. I mean, I guess the interesting thing is you probably think that, I don't know, Milan Mandaric is a very interesting character because he is a businessman, but he is a football man. And he's yes. probably someone who's probably the closest maybe to creating a, a degree of success. But he, he seems to still have a degree of success of, you know, having that kind of promotion and ability and push to where he wants the football club to be and to get how you know the club and everything in order before it's basically sold on. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a bit of a specialist in that regard, or certainly mm-hmm. made himself a bit of a specialist in that regard. I just remember, well, obviously, it's such a huge relief when Milan came on board, and the fact that he's a football man was, I think, just immediately you knew. You knew you were in a safer set of hands. You knew that this was a guy that knew what he was doing. Uh, and I think his first appointment in, in Gary Megson sort of told the whole story in that regard. That it's like Megson, I think, had been mentioned for the job every single time it had come up for about 10 years. <laughs> but Mandrich, I think, would have known what's, what, what Megson would bring to the role. That pride that belief uh, and he wouldn't have been worried about dealing with him as a difficult personality which i've no doubt he was an absolute nightmare to deal with <laughs> i think it's the sort of guy in your friend group that you make you're making excuses for all the time i imagine go next now i know he's a bit of a prick but he's all right really <laughs> can you picture yourself being friends with gary and luke I can't. I really cannot. I think that'd be really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed uh, right at the front of the book as well. I, some of the descriptions of the, the cast of characters at the beginning. Oh, yes. Um, I love the fact that Milan Mandarich is classed as a serial club owner. Uh, he will chairman again. <laughs> One story told week to week. <laughs> Over a watery telephone. <laughs> But things, I mean, so the the book takes a long time to get to this stage, but I, I think fairly, the pace really picks up um, at this stage. We, we're we are headed towards, you know, the, the end of the book. Um, and I think that the, the chapters get a bit shorter. It all gets a bit choppier in terms of the, the pace of things moving along. Because, um, but I, I did remember, I just, one of my notes I put, um, <laughs> because there's, uh, so there was Mandarich, and then, um, the next chapter is is called Progress, and they talk about the Azerbaijani takeover, Mamadov, and I could I had completely forgotten that whole episode, the whole Azerbaijan land of fire stuff, land yeah. of fire. Yeah, what a strange time that was. It was indeed, and you remember him like drinking a whole bottle of wine from a giant glass as well, or something like that. <laughs> 
But he that just quit that fell apart fairly quickly, didn't it? It did, it did, and um, yeah, very kind of interesting. And all of that led us on to I don't think do we I don't think we really want to kind of talk about kind of Chancery. Not so much, and I think the book sort of doesn't really. You, he's introduced uh, the book leads us up to getting to the playoffs. That's kind of the end. There is mm-hmm. an epilogue where. Um, the playoff semi-finals are covered and then the the actual final is only really mentioned in sort of notes at the end of the book it's it's more about sort of ending on that high point and i think that's a nice thing to do in terms of the book obviously we know <laughs> we know some of what happens afterwards we um, we've got the benefit of that but uh, it's a really nice place to kind of leave things off um much like my video uh, the road to wembley 93 um which just stopped at the uh, <laughs> After the, after beating Sheffield United, it just stopped uh, because who who needs to know about who needs to remember and find out about losing in the final? Just leave it as an ambiguous. Who who ah oh, who knows what would have happened? <laughs> so yeah, so. I guess maybe now, did we kind of ever really have a kind of, I guess because we've split this podcast into two episodes, there was just so much to talk about and so many kind of, um, you know, lanes to uh, to trip down hazily and drunkenly as we do and uh, as we do with our podcast rambling. Mm. Um, we never really kind of concluded and kind of did a real review of this book as well. So I think that's something that we can kind of lead and kind of finish off with. Yeah, happy to do that now. Yeah. Well, do you want to kick things off? Yeah, I think it's um, it's interesting reading kind of any kind of football literature because very much it it's kind of you're having stuff that you've kind of remembered or kind of forgotten, kind of told back to you, and then it's, so a lot of it is very triggering, and I think that's kind of why we do it. We kind of we do these things to kind of have moments that we kind of fire up from the memory banks and things, especially now where we're looking, we don't seemingly know when football will return. You know, we're looking back at everything and it's nice to have those moments to kind of to bring up for good and for bad as well. Um, so I, I think he does a very good job of kind of storying and getting getting a fair amount of kind of perspectives from people involved. Yeah. At the time. I, I find it interesting that I think I mentioned last week that um, the Frank Frank Simic was interviewed, but there's seemingly nothing yes. there for him. Um, there's probably a few other people. Um, who have reached out to to be contacted? Who... There's several people, yeah, that that, that uh, were spoken to but didn't didn't, didn't... Uh, quoted at all. Yeah, so I think that uh, you know, I think that um, the author does a very fun t- does a very good job of capturing mm-hmm. this, and I think it's a very worthy read. Um, I'm glad if we do any more kind of further kind of points in the the Gravy Book Club reviews. This was a good first, good first entry to kind of look at, and um, does well to kind of capture in the story, you know, a, a degree of kind of like a rise or fall. But it does seem to, I think, it's one of its um, plus points is it does manage to resemble kind of like a a real kind of narrative, even though there's a lot of like false dawns, there's a lot of ups and downs. Yes, you know, looking, it's a bit of a roller coaster looking back at a Sheffield Wednesday history. I think one of the things that not just this book, but as you say, looking back in general, you realize how fleeting the good times are for a football club like ours. Mm-hmm. It's not the case everywhere. Sometimes clubs are lucky enough to have whole, you know, decades where they are in their pomp. But for, for Sheffield Wednesday, it's by and large been a year or two here or there. And I think what 
for the one of the main takeaways for me is you've just got to enjoy the good bits when they come along. There's enough nonsense, and I just you sometimes get the thing you hear it around. I think people take particular uh, issue with certain words and phrases. So the one I think the one that comes up more more more, more often than not is is like legend. So somebody on a, on a message board or on Twitter will call such and such. I think Lee Bullen's a bit of a classic character in this regard. Some people would call Lee Bullen a legend, okay? And I've mm-hmm. seen several times, several people say, oh, how could he be a legend? With the years and years, he's not like, whatever, Mickey Lyons or whatever. And he like, I think that's where you can make your life miserable. Because if it's all got to be as good as the best day, if you and I watched every Sheffield Wednesday game in the context of it not being the Waddle game that we touched on as both being being at... Well, no, okay, yeah, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll enjoy like two games ever legitimately because they're not as good as when Chris Waddle single-handedly tore apart West Ham United that day and everybody was singing the Christmas songs. <laughs> I think what you've what you've got to do is live in the enjoyment of what's going on now and make the most of it as it comes by because there's enough crap. There's enough tough times. So when it's good, even if relatively it's not wonderful like lee bullen is a classic example just enjoy bullen bully for what he is heart and soul played every position great character loves the club was he was he a brilliant footballer nope did you know was he ever going to get an international cap nope does that actually matter no <laughs> so i think that's the thing when you sweep through 150 odd years of history and you pick out that like you know about seven of them are good you've got to just go like yeah when we're in the midst of that just give in don't start questioning how it compares to the 1970s just let yourself go with the flow of it um in terms of the book itself i think one thing i would just have loved a little bit more of and it was it was sort of picked out i think was um the paul jewel little bit of the interview the back and forth i would have just liked a little bit more insight and humor from the actual people involved and interviewed i think that's it's fascinating how many people were talked to to put the book together and i'm sure that all it all went somewhere it all fed into things and rounded out anecdotes and things like that and and you know corroborated things that or corroborated things that 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 have been said by others and things like that but it just would have been nice to have a few more of those little like real fun moments with the people the characters but there you go other than that i think it's a great book and i'd highly recommend giving it a read maybe don't do it in a week um because you've set yourself a deadline but um <laughs> other than that it's it's a cracker have it uh, well worth picking up um okay well with with without much further ado i think we should just sort of say cheerio luke is that does that seem sensible i think that does well i wish you all the very best for the week ahead i hope you get to you know make your trip to the maldives and etc and all those things at least in your mind your mind space and um, you know look after yourself folks and we'll we'll talk again next week have a good one everyone see you